Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, child brides forced to marry men much older, how this continues to happen in Texas and the efforts to shut it down. Could this be the legislative session when marijuana is decriminalized? There is reason for pro-pot hope. And how Governor Abbott and other state leaders are big on big government when it comes to running Texas cities. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. More than 40,000 people were part of child marriages in Texas between 2000 and 2018, more than any other state. Many of those marriages involved age differences that would constituted sex crimes. Frequently, these are young girls forced to marry men much, much older. But there's a bill in the Texas legislature that would close a loophole for child marriages. In 2017, Texas made marriage illegal for those under the age of 16, but the state law still allows emancipated 16- and 17-year-olds to marry. That loophole is a problem, according to Frady Reese, founder and executive director of Unchained at Last. There was a bill that passed in Texas that supposedly ended child marriage. However, that bill left a gaping loophole under which 16- and 17-year-olds can still be married in Texas if they are emancipated. And, of course, that leaves open the option for parents to pressure their child to emancipate or force them to emancipate in order to force them to marry. It also has created a lot of other logistical headaches for us as we're trying to help survivors escape forced marriages in Texas. We've had uh, Representative John Rosenthal tried in 2021. He introduced a bill to close that remaining loophole and actually end child marriage, which legislators thought they had done in 2017, and that bill did not pass. And now Rosenthal has tried again. How young are uh, participants in child marriages? And what emancipation does is once a minor proves to a court that they are self-sufficient, what the court does is emancipate them, and that means it gives them some limited rights of adulthood, the limited rights that they need to navigate the world with a certain level of independence until they turn 18 and get the full rights of adulthood. So the parents and the child would go before a judge and file some paperwork, and they would sign off on it, and then that child would be emancipated and eligible for a marriage at 16. And that's the concern. So a minor in Texas may petition to have the disabilities of non-age removed if they live in Texas, are 17 or at least 16, and have been living separate from their parents or guardians, and are uh, self-supporting. So do we know numbers? Like what? how big of a problem are we talking about? We don't have data, hard data on how often this is currently happening in Texas. We do know it continues to be a problem because we continue to get calls from girls who are impacted by this in Texas. And in fact, our, uh, a call from a girl who was, whose life was pretty much destroyed by this loophole that passed in 2017 reached out to us only a couple of weeks after the bill passed. 
Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that person and um, without giving away any confidentiality, kind of help us understand how did that happen yeah. to her? So, uh, so I don't want to obviously couldn't give any specifics uh, about any one case, but here's what we have found in Texas since the bill passed, starting from, as I said, two weeks after this went into effect. Typically, it's very difficult for us to help a minor who reaches out to us who is facing a because of their legal rights. And we have to get very creative. We want to try to help them. And one of creative methods that we have found that we have used in, in Texas and other states to try to help a minor who is facing a forced marriage is if they are somewhat independent is we can help them get an attorney to help them seek emancipation. And then if their uh, parents are trying to take them overseas, for example, to force them into a marriage in another country, then if, if they're not emancipated, no matter who they beg for help, their parents have the right to take them overseas. And then once they're there, they're going to be forced into that marriage. But if they're emancipated, then they can refuse to go with their parents overseas. So uh, emancipation used to be an avenue for escape for parents. When parents were planning to take their children overseas for a forced marriage, emancipation was one strategy we could use to help that minor in certain circumstances. It's not easy to get emancipation, but that is one strategy that we have used or tried to use. When a girl reaches out to us now in Texas, and this started as soon as this bill became effective, as soon as this new law went into effect, a girl reaches out to us, we're afraid now to help her emancipate because then her parents don't have to take her overseas for that forced marriage. Then once she's emancipated, they could just take her down the street and marry her off right there. So uh, for a girl who is still under her parents' control, emancipation used to be a way out. And now instead, emancipation creates additional dangers and obstacles. In the seven states that have ended child marriage in the U.S. in the last few years, they have not left in an emancipation loophole. They have recognized that there's no reason for an emancipation loophole because the minor doesn't need the right to marry in order to navigate the world independently, an emancipated minor. And it's dangerous because it can be uh, it can take away a child's one avenue of escape. You're referring to a girl and frequently about girls. So is this something that is more involving young women? Yes, I can tell you that. Uh, so in Texas, for example, between 2000 and 2018, and we have actual data from 2000 to 2017 and 2018 marriage certificate data. And in 2018, we had to estimate based on census data because we were unable to get the data from the state. Um, but between 2000 and 2018, I can tell you of the minors who married, I can tell you how many were boys versus girls, but it's overwhelmingly girls. 86% were girls. And they're not girls marrying boys. It's overwhelmingly it's girls married to adult men, and I can give you the total percentage of that. 96% were girls wed to adult and adult men. And this is uh, based on data, by the way, marriage certificate data from the Texas Department of State Health Services. So this would be a young girl, 16 years old, possibly marrying a man in his 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s? 
Correct. And and you know, before the law changed, so we have, for example, a 12-year-old who was married in that time frame. And during that time frame, there were six 13-year-olds, more than 600 14-year-olds. And uh, yeah, we're talking about thousands of 15-year-olds. But primarily, and this is true across the United States, across the U.S., about 96% of the minors who marry are age 16 or 17. And that is true in uh, in Texas as well. If you covered that whole time period, there 92% of all the minors who married were age 16 or 17. That was the age group that needed more protection. The bill that passed in 2017 was a good first start, but it gave those 16 and 17-year-olds the least protection because they're the ones who can still get married under the emancipation loophole. Frady Reese is the founder and executive director of Unchained at Last. Unchained at Last is an organization dedicated to ending forced and child marriages in the United States through direct service and advocacy. The pattern has become we have a legislative session and some incremental progress is made towards decriminalizing cannabis, making it more available for medical use, but it's never enough so that many of the people who could really benefit from the marijuana properties can actually do that. So they have to break the law or go out of state where there is greater freedom in this area. But perhaps there will be bigger strides in this legislative session. We get an update from Jax James, the Texas Normal Director. Normal stands for National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Several dozen bills have been filed having to do with improving our medical cannabis program, reducing the penalties associated with the possession of cannabis flower, and in some cases, concentrates, and even some legislation to address the legalization of a regulated adult use market. And so we have already seen these bills starting to be assigned to committee. There was one hearing uh, previous weeks, uh, I believe it was February 28th, for Representative Joe Moody's HB 218, which the following week was passed out of committee unanimously. So hopefully that will be on the agenda for the House to consider shortly. And we also see that HB 1805, which would um, make some improvements to the medical cannabis program, is scheduled for a hearing in the Public Health Committee in the House on Monday. Now, in both of these cases, the chairs are also the authors of this legislation. And so we um, are confident that in addition to the uh, penalty reduction bill passing, that the medical bill will probably pass committee as well. So HB 218 reduces the penalties for possession of less than an ounce for cannabis flower or cannabis concentrate while also instructing officers to no longer make arrests for the possession of personal use amounts of either marijuana or related paraphernalia. Additionally, it facilitates a process for expungement of past marijuana charges. And that's interesting that it was able to pass out of the House Criminal Jurisprudence Committee unanimously. So does that mean it will go to the floor? Yes, this next step will be to the floor. And what I would like to point out is HB 218 takes two bills from last session that have already passed the House chamber and combines them together to kind of more encompassingly address the issues. And so we are hopeful that it will also pass the House floor, considering that it has passed in previous sessions in both of its iterations. So that's pretty ambitious for Texas. I mean, other states, that would be nothing. 
But for Texas, that seems to be uh, groundbreaking. Yeah, you know, um, I am pleased that Representative Moody has, you know, very dedicatedly worked on this issue and worked with um, stakeholders and the governor's office and, and other legislators to advance this legislation. While, you know, some would say it does not go far enough. Uh, it is definitely something that would be very life-changing for many Texans in our state. Um, you know, cannabis flower, of course, comes with a potential penalty of 180 days in jail, $2,000 fine, uh, collateral consequences having to do with your driver's license and other areas. But cannabis concentrates are a first-degree state jail felony, and most people do not realize that. So not only does this help um, Texans uh, you know, reducing that impact, but it also brings some parity between uh, the two, the two types of law. People might be interested to know that there's an interesting coalition of people who support to gain access to legal marijuana in, in Texas. Um, and that would be a lot of veterans and, and people who are dealing with pain issues. Absolutely. Yes. I guess their voice matters a lot in, in these discussions in the legislature. Absolutely. You know, we see a lot of patients and veterans reaching out to these offices to have conversations about how to improve the, the medical cannabis program. And while there are a lot of aspects we would like to see addressed, you know, HB 1805 does do some important things. Um, and we are hopeful that we can continue to make it a more functional and um, uh, compassionate program for those that are participating. I've heard that they wanted to add pain management to the uh, list of, of treatments available for people with using medical marijuana. That's not the case now, but you know, adding that would, would be a benefit. Yes, chronic pain or, or where an opioid would otherwise be prescribed, potentially. And how is that faring in the, in the lawmakers' chambers? Well, you know, it is authored by Representative Click. She is the original author of the Texas Compassionate Use Program, and every... Um, change to the program has been legislation drafted by her. Um, she works closely with the Senate chamber to make sure that they are coming up with something that they believe can pass both of them. So some might, you know, consider this a limited change, but for those that live with chronic pain, um, this will definitely be uh, an extreme improvement for them, opening up their options for what they can use as a, a less harmful option than some of these opioids. I know that you're really focused on trying to make available the actual marijuana, uh, but the, you know people aren't using Delta Eight, which is a synthetic, and uh, people are hoping that they're able to keep maintain access to that. What can you tell us about, especially with veterans and uh, trying to use Delta Eight to manage their their pain issues? Uh, what, what's happening in the legislature? Well, you know, the VFW has come out saying that either some robust, inclusive changes need to be made to the Texas Compassionate Use Program or Delta 8 needs to remain available um, so, because veterans, many veterans are using them. Um, now, Delta 8 is not our priority subject matter, but I can, you know, say that there are a lot of people using it. Many businesses uh, survived the pandemic and have been keeping people employed by, um, you know, having access to these hemp market items. However, I do think it's important that we address a few issues having to deal with Delta 8. Um, it's extremely important that they be properly labeled and that that label include that it is a synthetic cannabinoid. It's also extremely important that the testing uh, for any additives, dilutants, or, you know, um, anything that could be contaminating it, the product is being enforced. And additionally, um, you know, 
including that because some of these um, synthetic cannabinoids do have an intoxicating effect, that it be um, for those 21 and up, as is in line with, you know, alcohol here in the state. So do you think we're going to see bills passed and signed into law? Overall, I do feel fairly confident that we will see some robust change. Um, I believe that Representative Click's bill is likely to pass. I'm not sure if changes uh, to it will happen along the way because, you know, that kind of um, can happen. But I do feel confident about medical improvements. I think that this is um, one of the best shots we've had at penalty reduction for Texas. You know, this is something that Governor Abbott has supported for years and, in fact, believed that was in place in one of his campaign statements that he made. And so I think it's important that we get this on the books finally. It used to be a sort of a conservative principle that government closest to the people knows best. And in that case, it's Texas cities. Uh, majority of, of the population lives in our great over 1,200 Texas cities. And they like the fact that uh, Lubbock is different from Austin, that Austin's different from Galveston, that Galveston's different from Dallas. And those differences are what makes Texas cities great. And so this idea to make them all the same and take them over at the state level and govern centrally from, from Austin uh, really goes against decades of, of what's made the Texas miracle happen. A lot of people aren't aware that state government can have such a direct impact on their lives and this is something that we can see that if this comes into place, uh, particularly, I think it's uh, Senate Bill 814, uh, filed by Republican Senator Brandon Creighton of Conroe, that, uh, that Texas cities and counties will no longer be able to adopt ordinances related to, uh, in a lot of different areas, like door-to-door -door yeah. salesmen, you know, how many chickens you can have, stuff like that. What, what is happening with that? Well, that, these bills we call super preemption. It means that it's not just that the legislature doesn't want cities acting in a certain area like plastic bags or, or ride share or these types of things. It's just from a top-down approach saying we don't want cities doing any regulatory uh, things in these areas. We think we know better at, at the bigger level of government, at state government, which just kind of turns on its head uh, the way we've always thought about, like I said, government being closest to people knows best. Uh, people know they're how to reach their mayor. They often see them at the grocery store, at church. They know how to reach out and make their opinions known. And, and that's why cities look differently, because people in different parts of the state have different needs. And I think it's alarming that we're going to start governing centrally uh, out of Austin uh, instead of respecting those, those local needs and those local voters. They're the same voters that voted for those state reps and senators, uh, and they trust their mayor just as much as they trust their state representative. And uh, why we want to take those powers away and, and take that control away from the from the locality is, is beyond me. Well, it comes down to, you know, flexibility and ability to respond uh, quickly. Well, the legislature meets every other year, and we know how hard it is to pass a bill in the legislature because you know, for such a short time. And everyone's got their finger in the pot, and they can interfere with a local municipality just, just because, just because. But this bill, it's also House Bill 2127, and it gives the state exclusive authority over any activity covered by the Texas Agriculture, Finance, Insurance, and Natural Resources and Occupational Codes. That's a lot. So things like a music festival safety, overgrown lots, controlled burns, other things like that, that's a very local kind of a thing. You want your city to be able to 
adapt and respond and create and experiment a little bit and we can learn from each other and what works, what doesn't work. But if it's all coming from Austin, that's going to get arthritic pretty quick. Absolutely. You know, the, the state government uh, complains, rightly so, that that they don't want to be made to look like California. You know, te- Texas is different from California. They make that point often. And that's a good thing. That's kind of the laboratory of democracy is that te- Texas gets to go its own route. Florida gets to go its own way. New York does its own thing. Why doesn't that same argument apply for cities? There's no reason uh, Lubbock uh, needs to look like San Antonio. They're different cities. Businesses are attracted to differences in Texas cities, and those differences are a feature, not a bug. They're a good thing, and I don't see businesses struggling to, to locate in Texas. They want to come here, and they want to be in different cities and, and enjoy the different amenities that different cities have. You know, you've got cities in the valley right now. Spaceports are booming. Uh, businesses have no trouble adapting to those differences. They like those differences instead of, uh, you know, the talking points we're hearing that all city regulation has to be the same. You know, Starbucks manages to locate a, a store in every city they want to be in in Texas, even though each of those cities has different development regulations and zoning and, and so forth. Businesses know how to adapt, and they love the differences uh, between Texas cities. And again, that's what that's what makes us great. Do you think uh, Governor Abbott and these uh, Republican lawmakers are still reacting to what happened during the pandemic, where different cities? had different approaches to uh, dealing with the, the spread of COVID and, and and it became a political item. And so now we're seeing the politics of we want to control everything uh, has has become, you know, the, the, the standard. I don't know if it's primarily due to COVID restrictions. You know, Governor Abbott sort of preempted all local governments pretty quickly during the pandemic. And we, and we, most mayors understood that during an emergency like that, the governor, uh, governor's power should be respected. I think it's coming more from national libertarian think tanks that have come up with this idea that power ought to be centralized in state government uh, versus federal or local. And, and our position is that each, all three branches, all three levels of government do their own thing. And cities are the closest and they, they should have that sort of control over granular issues, like you say, land use and public safety and those types of things. So I think it's more of a a national trend to to try to say that state government is supreme. Um, I I call it the Goldilocks approach. You know, the federal government is big and bad. Cities are small and bad. And somehow state government gets it just right in the middle. And that can't possibly be the case. All levels of government have their role, and particularly local governments and mayors know what what their citizens need on the ground, and they're good for the needs of their citizens as well as the needs of the businesses that want to locate here. Think of all the new corporate headquarters that have moved to Texas over the last few years. They seem to be great with, with what cities are doing. And so I think I think it is an effort to centralize power at the middle level of government and say that state government is supreme, and, and that can't possibly, can't possibly be the case. Well, you have to wonder, though, if there's some sort of punitive – aspect to this as well. And I'm thinking about a bill that was filed that would uh, terminate the ability of a city-owned, municipal-owned utility from transferring uh, revenue, its general revenue, to the city that owns it. And uh, this would have a crippling impact on cities like Austin, San Antonio, and, and a few others that own the, either the water company or the electric company. And um, and that was it's a it's a revenue source. 
Absolutely. In fact, it would affect hundreds of cities that have most cities have a water utility uh, and it would absolutely prohibit uh, the city from reimbursing itself for the for the damage that, you know, when when a private company tears up the right of way to put in cable or a water line or so forth, uh, they have to pay a, a fee to the city to help rebuild the streets and so forth. And so those transfers represent uh, the profit that private companies have to tr- have to help out with. Uh, in their cities, and so absolutely, it would prevent uh, those cities from from paying for the uh, tearing up the streets and, and the right of way uh, to lay those water lines and electric lines. So that is a that is a dangerous bill. It's 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 practice it's common practice for every city with a utility uh, to transfer a modest amount of money uh, to their general fund to help pay for uh, rebuilding the, the rights of way in the streets uh, that those utility improvements uh, cause. So you're absolutely right. It would force cities to privatize whatever public utility that they own because uh, they would they lose out on any of, of the revenue that they would get from that public utility, the municipal-owned utility. But if you privatize it, sell it off, then you would be able to recoup that through taxes. But we've seen what happens when you do privatize utilities. They become very profit-oriented, and they can be caught off guard during a crisis like we've seen during these weather events. Texas citizens uh, love their local water utility and their local electric utility. Those, those utilities are one of the reasons cities exist. Uh, we don't have shareholders that we have to pay a profit to. There's no middleman. Uh, cities utilities are directly responsive to the taxpayer. And we found that uh, cities that have their own water and electric utility, the rates are often lower than, than in the private sector uh, because you don't have that middleman making a profit. And so, yeah, we don't, we're, there's no reason to privatize those. And there shouldn't be a bill that, that makes an incentive to privatize those, as you point out, uh, because those transfers, those are taxpayer dollars that are going back to the taxpayer and helping to lower property taxes and, and other and other fees so that the city can rebuild the, that infrastructure and right away that it's caused by those utilities. So it's a great system. It's, it's low cost and citizens like their own water system uh, that they control through their elected officials. And yeah, we need to stick with that. It makes me wonder if these types of bills like this one, is it uh, unintended consequences? They didn't think it through. They didn't look around a corner to consider what the impact would be. Apply that to these other bills where they're trying to take away city authority, county authority to do this local, uh, very local governance. Trying to apply the logic of Wichita Falls to Texarkana or to Laredo, you're going to end up with a lot of unintended consequences and, and failures. Absolutely. Texas is so broad geographically like no other state what works in one area of the state can't work in other areas. For example, a few years ago, uh, you had small West Texas towns uh, that, that felt they needed to ban plastic bags because the bags were getting in the cattle feeders and choking the cattle. Meanwhile, you had coastal cities uh, where the, the plastic bags were washing up on the beach, and they felt strongly about it. And meanwhile, you had dozens of cities that could care less about plastic bags. And so why, why not let those different geographic circumstances control, dictate what, what kind of rules and regulations we see, because every region of Texas is unique. And one-stop, top-down governance from Austin uh, is, a, is a recipe for unknown disasters that we can't even imagine, especially these what we call these super preemption bills that are very top-down and, and unspecific and vague. Who knows what we're getting into that we're going to have to fix two years from now, four years from now. 
And to your point, the legislature doesn't meet very often. So if we have these unintended consequences, it's going to be 2025 before we can unravel them all. Well, let's call it what it is. You know, it's big government. And who controls big government? And that's lobbyists and deep pockets and big business. And it's the little guy that gets cut out. Uh, cities respond to the little guy because you, the uh, you know city council folk, you know, they're at the same HEB that I'm at. You know, we cross paths mm-hmm. all the time. They have to respond immediately to local situations that have to be addressed. And you wonder, by going to a big government route, what are we going to end up with? You're absolutely right. You know, mayors that I deal with in, in my association, uh, like you say, uh, they meet with their constituents every day at the supermarket, at church, at civic clubs, and people know where to find their mayor. And if they're unhappy with what their city is doing on a certain area, uh, they're going to put pressure and that'll change. And, and many cities meet, have council meetings every week, and they have an opportunity to immediately uh, rectify situations that the citizens are unhappy with. And that's a good thing. If we start to centralize that power at, at big government, state level, just like the states are concerned about centralizing power at the federal government, uh, you lose that reflect that responsiveness and flexibility. Bennett Sandlin is the executive director of the Texas Municipal League. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. Check out past Texas Matters programs on our website, tpr.org. You can find us wherever you download great podcasts and tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at texasmutual.com.